Now, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, the first chapter. I am between series at the moment, and uh, were we following a church calendar, today would be Ascension Sunday, uh, the Sunday in which we give attention to the Ascension of our Lord. And I have determined this morning that we are going to focus at least somewhat on the Ascension And you have heard that already in the three hymns that we have sung this morning. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we ask that as we turn to this text, the Holy Spirit who has given it by divine inspiration will illumine its page so that through that illumination, our own minds and hearts indwelt by the Spirit will also be enabled to understand the text and to see Christ on this page and to adore him and to crown him with many crowns. Help us, Father, that we will empty ourselves of self, contrast ourselves with the majesty of our Savior, and that we will be humble, humble in your presence. For we know that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and you have provided the faith which is a grace in itself. We owe everything to you, and we are grateful to know that we have a risen, ascended Lord to whom we turn our attention even in this text this morning, who watches over us as covenant people and who will bring us all the way to our heavenly home. Father, we know also that you have those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world who have not yet come to you. And we pray that this morning someone or some ones will be added to the number of those who trust in Jesus Christ because of the effectual drawing of your spirit. And these things we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior, and our King, our exalted Lord. Amen. Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses, this is the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Every week 
we confess together that Christ ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the quick and the dead. And here in Acts 1 we read of our Lord's glorious ascension. In fact, the book of Acts is really about the continuing ministry of the ascended Christ. Now since about the middle of the second century, the book that we call Acts has been called the Acts of the Apostles. But I think that we all recognize that a better title would be the Acts of the Risen Christ through the Holy Spirit, or something like that. The immediate purpose of Acts was to give to Theophilus, and we don't know who Theophilus was, but to give to Theophilus an account of how Christianity came to be. We read his name here in verse 1 in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now that first book, of course, is the book of Luke. And now he is saying, I'm writing this second volume of Luke that we now call Acts, and so that you may understand who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he taught. So we rightly speak of Luke-Acts when we talk about the relationship between these books. Acts tells us that Christ told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would empower them for their task of witnessing. And in Acts we trace the expansion of the Christian faith through Judea, Palestine, and eventually all the way to the emperor's doorstep. And Acts shows us that the New Testament church cannot be accounted for except on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the grave and his ascension into heaven. And the divine direction and energizing work of the Holy Spirit who exalts Jesus in the preaching of the church and in the lives of these early Christians. In Acts there is a sustained emphasis on Jesus as Messiah who died for sinners, who rose again, and that salvation is in his name, and that we, the church, are called upon to bear witness to his resurrection in the world. But it is especially this emphasis upon the ascension of our Lord that I want us to come to this morning as we begin to work our way through this text. So, as we come to the text, the first thing we want to notice is Jesus' ministry continues today. Jesus' ministry, the ministry of our exalted, ascended Savior, continues today. Look at the first two verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that's his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the point here is that Jesus' ministry continues. And in chapter 2, the ascended Christ poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, and Peter's preaching is blessed with incredible power. And as we move on in the book of Acts, we see the lame walk in his name, guidelines given for the establishment of deacons, the scattered church bearing witness, the matter of salvation by grace alone is settled in Acts 15. And we also see that he converts and raises up Paul the Apostle and that Christ himself is the unseen actor in the book that would have his gospel taken by Paul the Apostle all the way to the book of Rome, where the book of Acts concludes. Now all of this happens in view of the omnipotence of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And it gives me great delight to be able to say to the congregation that your pastors believe, and the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ 
was bodily raised from the tomb. Jesus Christ lives. His bones do not bleach under a Palestinian sky, but he lives. And in verse 3 we read, to them, that is to the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now the word here that is translated uh, in this passage, um, convincing proofs or decisive proofs, uh, is a word that is translated in the authorized version, many infallible proofs. And I like that translation because that's precisely what happened. Jesus walked with his disciples after his resurrection. He ate with them, he showed them his scars, and continued teaching them about the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Christ is the major theme of apostolic preaching. It is the major component of Paul's theology and his epistles. There is simply no message for the Christian church to preach apart from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The whole Bible shows the progression of Christ, and this is the point to which we have come. What defines your Christian life and what defines the church in the day in which we live is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has risen and ascended, we are called to bear witness to his name and to herald him to the world, and it is Christ's ministry that continues today. Now that should be clear in these verses. But also notice, secondly, that Christ's ministry continues through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And so if you will notice in verses 4 and 5, we read, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in verse 6, they ask the question of Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I think that that's the wrong focus in their question. Calvin says there are as many errors in this question as there are words. They're not asking the right question. The right question really, if you want to think about it, is not when will the Lord restore the kingdom to Israel, but when will Israel be restored to the kingdom? But the point is, Jesus gives us the focus that he wants us to have in verse 7 when he says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. And he says, what I want you to do is to wait for the Holy Spirit. And until I come again, bear witness to my name. When I come again is really not for you to be concerned with. I am coming again, and you are to bear witness to my name. For the interim, then, the Lord Jesus promises his church power. And it says there in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Which is a table of contents of this book, by the way. Jerusalem chapters 1 through 8, Judea and Samaria chapters 8 through 12 essentially, and the gospel taken to Rome, and how that happens, chapter 13, all the way through chapter 28. But you know, a deeper look at this table of contents is very revealing, because the gospel is to be taken to Jerusalem. Christ was crucified there, cruelly. He was hated by men. 
The gospel is to be taken to Judea. Christ was rejected in Judea. It is to be taken to Samaria, which was a despised race. And it is to be taken to Rome and to the ends of the earth because there will be Gentile inclusion in the kingdom of God. That's his plan. What a great thing to be a part of the church in which mercy is shown to those who crucified and slew the Lord of glory and to those who have been also rejected by others in the world and who are of no account to others but are of great account to the Lord because they are purchased by his blood. It's a wonderful thing. What a great thing to be a part of the church of the ascended Lord. And this text gives us our marching orders as a church. How can I say this? Because proclaiming Christ is unfinished. I mean, isn't that what verse 8 says? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you're working out in concentric circles here. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And there are places that have not yet heard the gospel. That's our marching orders from the king. Keep your finger here and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. Because Jesus is reflecting Isaiah 49, verse 6. Now Isaiah 49 is one of the servant passages in the book of Isaiah that speaks of the coming servant of the Lord, who is Jesus, who would die for sinners, and who would be raised again. And the suffering servant of the Lord is described in this way in verse 6. Look at it. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you, this is speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it is this that Jesus speaks to his disciples when he tells them to preach the gospel to the end of the earth. What's the conclusion? The conclusion must be Jesus' ministry continues until he returns. And if you'll keep your finger in Acts 1 and turn over in the book of Acts to chapter 13, you'll notice the, the preaching of Paul the Apostle who says in verse 47... As he is proclaiming the word about the Lord including the Gentiles, he says in verse 47, Acts 13, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is a quotation, again, from Isaiah 49, and Paul applies the servant passage to himself and his own ministry. Now that's very significant, isn't it? How can he do that? Because through Paul's proclamation of the word, the ascended Christ is continuing his ministry in the world. And that's true of us who sit here today who are believers in Jesus. You know, the word witness is applied 15 times to believers in the book of Acts, but there are over 60 examples of public and private witness to Jesus' name in the book of Acts. The apostles didn't turn the world upside down because they preached politics or because they lost themselves as a church in social work or by being silent. 
they preached and witnessed the church. All of those things may be good, but the church has a unique call that no other institution has, and that is to proclaim the risen Lord. And the apostles preached and witnessed to the world that Christ was risen by the de- from the dead. And let me say to someone here this morning who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and my heart burns that you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you are not in union by faith with this risen Lord, you may die before this day is out. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in union with Christ raised from the dead and we have the promise of the resurrection in the last day and we will be with Him when we die. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ because there is no other Savior, no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. And that is the witness, the very simple but profound witness that the church is called to continue taking into the world today. So Christian, to continue his work, the ascended Christ has poured out his Holy Spirit. And I ask, do you rejoice in the absolute dependence that you have on the Holy Spirit? Because it is a good thing. When we sense ourselves to be nothing, I can do nothing, I can achieve nothing. But through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, we must work and we must labor. I love the way Spurgeon somewhere said, we must have a living church for a living work. And that means a church that is endued with the power of the Spirit of God. Now this risen Christ is the ascended Christ. The fourth thing I want you to see is the ascension of Christ guarantees the success of the church's mission. Let me repeat that. The ascension of Jesus guarantees the success of the church's mission. Let's read again verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things as they were looking on Jesus, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, these are, of course, they looked like men, they were angelic beings, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the Gospel of Luke ends with a reference to the ascension of Christ in chapter 24. Now he takes up the ascension in the context of the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. And he wants us to understand its significance. Jesus Christ ascends in heavenly glory. There he is in the Shekinah. And we ask the question, what is the significance of this glorious ascension of the Son of God? Would you like to know what the significance of the ascension is? I have nine answers for you (laughs) in rapid succession. Here they are. And I'm sure I could have come up with more. First, the ascension is an emblem of completion and finality. Now, I'm actually quoting there a great work on the resurrection by an Anglican scholar whose name was Sparrow Simpson. You may or may not know his name, but he made the comment it was for the apostles an emblem, the ascension. It was an emblem of completion and finality. It suggested the termination of the period of visible contact with the Son of Man and the commencement of another period under conditions of a different kind. 
So the ascension shows that there are new conditions for the Son of God who is raised and now lives in heaven in his glorified body, but new conditions for us as well as we are empowered by the Spirit to bear witness to his resurrection from the dead. New conditions showing that there is a finality to his earthly ministry, but that he continues it in a different way. Secondly, the ascension speaks of heavenly triumph. Heavenly triumph. The real body of Jesus that came out of the tomb that was raised is now suited to the circumstances of resurrection and to heavenly, the heavenly environment and glory. So his real body exists in Holy Spirit suffused and controlled conditions. He went up into heaven, whatever, however we are to understand that dimension that the Bible calls heaven. He entered into it, lift up your heads, you mighty gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Obviously, that's what the angels are singing, or something very much like it. When Jesus ascends into heaven, and it represents that he is our glorious, ruling, reigning King, He's no longer in a grave. He rose from the dead. He completed his work. He purchased his people. And now he ascends into heaven. Heavenly triumph. Thirdly, the ascension means that Christ would dispense his gifts upon the church. Now Paul tells us that in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. That he was ascended. He has poured out gifts upon the church. He enumerates the gift of office in particular. And so there, there he is in heavenly glory. And he would dispense his gifts upon the church. So that we are not left without the gifts that we need to accomplish the goal and purpose. For which he has ordained his church to bear witness to his name. We have those gifts. And we can accomplish That is to say, he will accomplish through us this purpose. Fourthly, the ascension means that Christ's exaltation to the right hand of the Father has occurred. When he ascended on high, the New Testament tells us that having purchased his people, he sat down at the right hand of God. Listen to this from Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." exalted to the right hand of the Father. And I'm overwhelmed by that. Are you? Is this this nothing to us? Are you moved? Are you not overwhelmed? There's a story told of a bishop who was asked by a child, Bishop, what is glory? Children always ask the best questions. And the bishop just sat there with no answer. Not because he couldn't have described what kavod in the Old Testament means and doxa in the New Testament means and what glory essentially means. The point was there are just some things, the significance of which are so deep and rich that we have no words for them. 
And that's the way I feel when I come to the ascension of Jesus. What does it mean that the real body of Jesus goes now to a different dimension, heaven, and there he rules and there he reigns and he presents his merit on our behalf and he sees to it that his own are drawn to him and persevere to the end. The thought of the ascended, regnant Christ in heaven takes my breath away. Fifthly, the ascension meant that the Lord would fulfill his promise of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Now, he told them to wait for the promise. Of course, that was promised in the upper room discourse in chapter 2, verse 33 of the book of Acts. Just turn over a page, chapter 2, verse 33. In Peter's preaching, he said, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, therefore, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what defines the church and our place in history and our calling between the ascension and the return of Christ is that he has poured out his Spirit upon the church so that we may bear him witness. Sixth, The ascension means that Christ now serves us as our great high priest in heaven. And it would take many sermons, but remember that the book of Hebrews tells us that it is the ascended, exalted Lord who serves us as our great high priest in heaven, and there he makes intercession for you, believer, whoever you may be. Seventh, the ascension of Christ guarantees the success of Christ's continuing ministry And what I'm really after here is that because of Jesus' mediatorial enthronement, because his work was rewarded, it must be triumphant. It has to be triumphant. So that you will remember as we were working our way through Ephesians chapter 1, not long ago, that it describes Jesus, that God works in our lives according to his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. His ministry must accomplish the purpose for which he died and was raised and is ascended. Eighth, the ascension of Christ means that all of Christ's enemies are right now being placed under his feet. In the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, all of his enemies are being placed under his feet. Ascension points to the enthronement. Enthronement means kingship, and Jesus must reign as mediator, we are told in several places in Scripture, until he has placed all enemies under his feet. The world is a rebellious province of Jehovah's dominion, but it is Christ's dominion, and he will have it. Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession, the Father says to the Son. And so the ascension means that his enemies are being placed under his 
feet. Ninth, the ascension of Christ. Isn't it obvious? The ascension of Christ is our call to missions. Isn't it? Surely you see this means missions. For this the enthroned Christ has poured out his spirit. Remember verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from, the, from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Power for witness. And the last sentence of the book of Acts in Greek contains... The word boldness. Paul continued to witness with boldness. It is the next to last word in the book of Acts. So the disciples of Jesus, there they are after Jesus' death on the cross. They cower in fear. Then everything changed. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, ascended on high, poured out his spirit. And the same spirit who indwells you is operative in your life that your words and that your living may be bold and empowered for witness. So the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome and continues to conquer hearts today. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 16 that he will establish his church. And he tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That the forces of hell and the devil himself cannot conquer the church of our risen Lord So go out boldly, not arrogantly, in utter humility and complete dependence of the Spirit of God, and tell the message, because that's our call. You know, I said recently in a sermon on Psalm 2, we just don't give enough attention to the kingly office of Christ. It's good that we know he's our prophet who has given us his word. It is right that we focus upon him as priest who died for us. But we also need to live our Christian lives in the recognition that we are in union with the ascended Christ and that he's the king. So that Pastor Saeed, languishing in Avin prison, when he witnesses for his name is being used of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the risen Christ right where God in his providence has put him. And you, lawyers, doctors, electricians, mothers, teachers, where you are, are called to bear witness to his name. Notice a fifth thing. The ascended Christ, and I can only mention it, the ascended Christ will come again, will come again. And we see it in verse 11. These angelic beings, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How did he go? He went in glory, and he will come in glory. 
He, he came into this world and was born in utter humiliation. In utter humiliation he went to the cross, but he is not in humiliation any longer. He rose from the dead. He's the exalted Savior. He went up in glory, and he's going to come back in glory. He will come back in the clouds of glory. There was a cloud, you know, on Sinai. A cloud of God's glory filled the tabernacle in the temple. A cloud was there at transfiguration. And Jesus is taken in a cloud and will come back on the clouds. Daniel 7.13, Matthew 24.30, Revelation 1.7. Don't have time to look, but all of those verses say so. So right now, Jesus is calling out of the world a people for his name and preparing them to join him in glory. And this is our blessed hope, the hope that makes our witness urgent. Because Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, but to be adored of his saints. And there is a great and marvelous work to be done by the risen Lord, empowering his church before he returns. So let me bring it to a conclusion with a few thoughts for you, just a few. Do you not think that it is a wonderful thing that the Lord used Luke, who was concerned that this one man, Theophilus, understand the gospel, and that he wrote Luke Acts, God's word to Theophilus, and God's word to us. Just think about it. Luke would have been a 35-foot-long scroll. That's about the length of scrolls in those days. It would have filled the scroll. That's why I had to get another for Acts, you see. About a 35-foot scroll, 19,404 words. Acts is a 32-foot scroll, 18,374 words, and I didn't count them. I went somewhere to find this. And the point is this. God must have cared an awful lot for Theophilus. And Luke must have reflected the loving heart of God to take the time and write out, investigate, he tells us in Luke, the first chapter, to investigate thoroughly and to take the time to write out the content of Luke Acts. And there's someone here today, and God cares for you. And do you know where he speaks? He speaks right here. You need to go home. You need to begin to open the Bible, and you need to begin to read it. Because if God has written us a love letter, this is it. This is where he shows what he has done to save and redeem sinners. Go home, open it, and there meet Jesus. Because your great need is the forgiveness of sins. And in Luke, Acts, and the whole of the Bible, you'll read how the Lord has accomplished the redemption of sins. And you know one of the great things you'll read in the book of Acts, if you've never read it, someone here, you've never read it, you'll read about a man named Saul of Tarsus. Brilliant, brilliant Pharisee, brilliant scholar, brilliant man. Hated Jesus, hated the church, persecuted the church, and he met the risen Lord who showed himself to him on the Damascus Road And Saul of Tarsus was converted and becomes the great apostle, Paul the apostle, who preached the gospel through the world 
And Paul was changed from a hater of God and of his people to the great witness for Christ, perhaps the greatest the world has ever known. And if he can change Saul of Tarsus, let me tell you, it's a snap for him to change you. And this risen, ascended Christ will come again, and his resurrection and ascension affects everybody here, because when he comes again, it will be the day of judgment. And you either will stand in the righteous robe of Jesus, having trusted in him, or you will stand in your own filthy rags and be condemned. And this makes the call to faith and repentance this morning urgent. But now, Christian, let me say these things to you as we think about the ascended Christ. Is your gaze of faith placed upon the ascended Christ, or is your gaze placed elsewhere? I'm not saying ignore your circumstances or the difficulties of life, but where is your gaze placed? Where is your heart placed? As Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him glory. What a commentary on Acts 1 we have in Colossians chapter 3. You know, the story I've read in different places of the building of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Some of you have been there, you've climbed the steps, you know how big it is, how wonderful, what a great thing it was to have been built. One workman was asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm fitting a stone in place. Now, what does it look like? Another was asked, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm making a living. But another one was asked and he said, I'm helping Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. I'm asking, what are our attitudes as God gives us the privilege of working in his church and working for the extension of his kingdom? Uh, Or is it I'm just, the Lord is using my witness amazingly to build the great cathedral of his church. Now, my son Evan is in England, and he's working with... um, He's working on his Ph.D., but he's working with a couple of churches. Don't have time to explain everything, but he's working long hours with these two churches. And um, they asked him recently, what can we do for messy church to emphasize the ascension? Now, messy church is arts and crafts time with the children. (laughs) That's when they get out the scissors and the crayons and the paints and all of that. So we want somehow to help our children in messy church to think about the ascended Lord. How can we do that? He said, well, here's what you do. You trace out their little feet, and then you have them cut out their feet, and then you get a a sphere of the paper. You you have them, you know, painted blue and with gold. It looks like the sky. And then you take the tracery of feet, and you place it on, on the circle, And they can take it home, and they can put it above their beds. And when they look up, all they'll see is feet. Just as the apostles did, the last thing they must have seen were the feet. That's the idea. It really is, isn't it? That's where our gaze really must be. Makes me want to go home and have messy church, you know? I don't know what Vicky would think about having one of these things above the, 
you know, but the idea is right. Keep your gaze on the ascended Christ, look up for his coming, because this is the way to navigate the hardships of life, to honor the Lord. It's always with a view to his rule and reign. Your Christ is risen, he is ascended, he is reigning, and he's coming again. Keep your gaze there. And God's people said, Amen.